Thanks very much. Well, we haven't had uh, an online communist forum um, that's uh, covered uh, the events in uh, the United States. So I think it's worthwhile, um, you know, going back um, a few weeks to look at those um, events. Um, my own um, take on uh, Donald Trump um, is that uh, Donald Trump isn't a fascist. He uh, wasn't operating a fascist regime. I think those on the left that talk about um, Donald Trump, on the other hand, having um, um, fascists uh, inspired by him, fascists being mobilized by him, uh, are correct. We don't want to exaggerate these uh, forces. Uh, they are a motley crew. Um, they're not disciplined. Um, nonetheless, um, you know, we have to think a long way back uh, to find anything uh, like it. And I do agree um, with the analysis as put forward by um, Daniel Lazar. Um, um, in terms of what Trump represents is a symptom a symptom of decay um, um, in the United States. And um, whatever Biden is doing with his uh, near two trillion rescue package and his uh, signing up again to uh, the Iran deal, if we can get Iran to agree to that, um, his um, putting a block on any further building of the wall um, his uh, rescinding of the travel ban on people from Muslim countries and, and loads of other stuff. This does not overcome uh, the decay um, in the United States. There's not going to be um, an economic boom uh, of the sort that we lived through, some of us lived through in the 1950s, way in uh, to the 1960s of where, for example, in Britain, uh, you saw the doubling and doubling and doubling again uh, of living standards within an incredibly short period of time. Instead of that, um, what we would expect um, is either continued stagnation, and in the United States, we've seen, in essence, a stagnation uh, for vast, vast numbers of people in terms of their income for decades, and the same is true now in Britain um, and Europe. Um, personally, you know, in terms of what I've read, um, you know, none of us should be expecting uh, that to flip around and suddenly we're into the jobs come back and people's incomes uh, go up. We are living uh, in very uh, difficult times uh, and that matters in terms of working class strategy for those that, simply think that they can rerun um, either, you know, in Britain, the um, um, post-World War II, more or less-ish, Attlee government, you know, the NHS, council house, house building program, um, and all of that in America, perhaps, uh, you know, Roosevelt's um, New Deal, which was fundamentally built um, on the back of uh, um, building up for war, uh, World War II, supplying 
uh, the British Empire, but then itself, of course, uh, and then replacing um, the decayed British Empire uh, with the American um, um, hegemon. None of that um, is going to come back. Um, we're not expecting, in other words, um, some uh, boom where trade unionism uh, uh, becomes uh, easy. All you need to do is go on strike for half an hour and the boss concedes. Uh, we should expect to be going into much, much more difficult uh, terrain. And for comrades who simply say, well, what we need is a strike. Well, the, the, the danger is uh, that we're in territory of where the boss simply lays everyone off and there's plenty of those so to speak outside the factory gate uh, that are willing uh, uh, to uh, replace them trade unionism is weak and at least at present we should expect it to stay weak okay but what i wanted to do really uh, to begin with is just discuss and it will be interesting to hear um, um, uh, comrades um, uh, and uh, their take on it uh, the nature of what happened uh, in the run-up and at um, January the 6th. Um, I think it's been clear uh, that for way before uh, the American election, the American presidential election, uh, Trump has been um, gagging uh, to get uh, the armed forces um, um, involved in domestic American politics. Um, you know, we've seen that in terms of uh, his attempt to get the army, but he did succeed in getting federal agents involved uh, in terms of uh, demonstrations and events around Black Lives Matter. Um, we know that in terms of Trump, what his aim was, um, and that is to not only to be um, a president for a second term, uh, but he talked about being president for a third term. Well, ever since um, Roosevelt's death, um, um, that's against the Constitution. Constitution fixes um, two terms. Uh, Roosevelt served three terms and won a fourth term and then died. Exactly. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the law was changed. Uh, but Trump was talking about maybe arranging something. Well, there he was stacking courts, stacking the Supreme Court, um, agitating for the army to be involved. And also in the run up, looking at the opinion polls, um, he knew what we knew. Uh, and that is given the nature of uh, COVID-19, there'll be an awful lot of people voting in this election by post. Uh, and what he was doing is riding on the uh, denialism of a section of Republican voters and the Republican Party. You vote in person um, and somehow uh, that delegitimizes uh, postal votes. Um, that's what he was agitating for. So how would I uh, uh, characterize uh, um, uh, the situation? Um, well, this was a coup attempt. I mean, that, that's how I would uh, characterize it, a self-coup uh, attempt. Um, I've been reading various um, commentators in the United States. They quote um, Louis Bona Bonaparte, 1851. I think that's correct, except what I would add is what Marx um, added, uh, and I would apply it to Trump. 
um, where Marx was looking at uh, Louis Napoleon and comparing him with his uncle and said, first time tragedy, second time farce. Uh, I, I think that Donald Trump's attempted coup was most certainly um, farcical. Um, he couldn't get the army to move. We had uh, statements uh, by the chief of staff, the defense secretary, his defense secretary. We had a statement by uh, 10 living um, former defense secretaries basically saying, look, this is the constitution. Uh, we can't get involved. We cannot declare martial law. That was a judgment that was made um, um, after the American Civil War against uh, Lincoln, who imposed uh, martial law throughout the country, not only over uh, areas uh, of the Northern Army moving down south, uh, but also against pro-Confederate uh, dissident forces uh, in the north. And the Supreme Court ruled that you can't do that. Only when there's a state of real war uh, can you declare martial law. But clearly, Trump at least had the wish uh, that his Supreme Court, um, his Republican Party, um, his army, that he's the commander in chief um, of, would act. Um, and failing that, uh, what he hoped, I don't know, uh, whatever you want to call it, the mob um, uh, that he rallied and then um, 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 encouraged to march on the Capitol. Uh, would pull some sort of rabbit uh, out of the hat. Um, he was uh, agitating um, for governors to disallow the vote. He was agitating uh, for Congress to disallow the vote. He was agitating for Mike Pence, uh, who chairs the Senate, to disallow the vote. Mike Pence, just like the army, said, we can't do it. It's uh, against the Constitution. And, and, and the idea... Uh, that Trump didn't have an inkling, didn't have a clue what at least sections uh, of um, the crowd uh, that marched on the Capitol that day had in their minds is just not credible. Uh, we know that, of course we know, uh, that the FBI uh, was monitoring <laughs> the chat, the telephone calls, uh, the emails, you name it. Um, uh, the idea that uh, the American state, um, you know, isn't a surveillance state, uh, that's just not credible. So we have evidence uh, of uh, people writing to each other, saying what they wanted to happen. And what they wanted to happen was break glass, let the blood flow, let's hang pence, uh, let's put these traitors on trial. Now, maybe... Uh, that would have happened. I doubt it. Uh, I think that um, uh, FBI agents wouldn't have shot down one person. Uh, you know, what you'd have seen is hundreds of deaths. But what they had in mind, uh, I don't think uh, is beyond debate. Uh, it would have been some sort of scene of where they held guns uh, to the heads of uh, members of Congress and said, you disallow this vote or we shoot you. And the same to Mike Pence. You stop this vote. This vote was a steal. You reverse it. What then was meant to happen? I haven't got a clue. I mean, does the army come in? If the army came in, in my view, it would have been to march away Donald Trump rather than to put Donald Trump 
um, um, back into the White House or keep Donald Trump in uh, the White House. Nevertheless, I think that if you characterize it as an attempted self-coup, uh, that is an accurate uh, description. As I said, I, I don't think that uh, we can uh, deny uh, the farcical uh, element of it. If, if we look at um, what is imagined uh, to be a classical coup, it was not a classical coup. A classical coup does not involve, um, how should we put it, the myth of the march on Rome. You know, the myth of uh, Mussolini is there you are, Italy is in chaos, he rallies his black shirts, you march on Rome and you, you take uh, um, the state. Uh, this is a myth. Uh, we all know uh, that Mussolini had arranged it all and the march on Rome was a piece of theatre and Donald Trump's piece of theatre hadn't been prearranged uh, with the army, hadn't been prearranged with the Supreme Court, um, um, hadn't been prearranged uh, with the CIA uh, or the FBI uh, or whatever. So what does this, what does this say? Uh, uh, as I said, I think it does say something profound uh, about the decay uh, of American politics and the fact that if you take um, uh, the Republican Party, bar very few, we, you know, we've uh, had a good article um, uh, by uh, Jim Cregan uh, in this week's Weekly Worker, and we've sort of head, headed it and he's got it as uh, Republican Party at odds. Well, it's true. Uh, that there is some dissent uh, in the Republican Party. There are some members of Congress uh, that have rebelled. But what is remarkable is how few uh, they are. Here is a, a, an open, uh, undisguised attempt to break the Constitution. And the majority of um, Republican uh, lawmakers seem to be prepared to go along with it. And whatever speculation we might have had a few days ago, uh, that seems to be the case. In other words, the Democrat attempt uh, to impeach Trump and put him on trial and find him guilty and bar him um, from standing in 2024 doesn't look like it will succeed. It doesn't look like there will be a two thirds majority uh, in the Senate uh, for that. So however bad uh, uh, Trump's lawyers are, however many of them resign, it just doesn't add up as far as I can see. And as my understanding of it is anyway, uh, that what Trump wants his lawyers to do is fight on the steel, fight on uh, the, the, the vote being taken uh, away from him. Either way, uh, the explanation in general uh, for this is twofold. And the first one is uh, that the Republican Party has been stuffed uh, with Tea Party supporters and now uh, with Trump supporters. The Tea Party is Trumpist. Um, the second one is that the ones that aren't uh, in their hearts uh, Trumpists fear Trumpist voters. And what they're looking towards uh, is 2022 and getting back and uh, making progress uh, against the regime of the Democrats and Biden uh, and making, um, um, creating the ground uh, for 2024. I mean, we don't know uh, whether Trump will run 
Um, we could speculate if, if, if we want. It's a long time off. Uh, that's all I would say um, on, on that one. Okay. Okay, I'm going to move from that subject, and again, I think the debate on that will be um, interesting uh, to definitely politics this time, Stan, um, a week in politics. Um, so I'm not going to be dealing with the events of several weeks ago, I'm dealing with uh, very recent events. We have um, Britain, uh, the United Kingdom applying to join the, let me get it right, the CPTPP. Um, that is the um, comprehensive program, or is it agreement? Um, anyway, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right? That, that's basically it. Now, this was a, a, an American uh, project. This was an Obama project. If you remember Obama's uh, tilt to Asia, uh, this was his uh, attempt to construct a, um, a Pacific um, alliance. Um, maybe the idea is to have a military aspect to it. There's talk of a quad um, um, of America, uh, Taiwan, New Zealand and Australia. I think maybe it's Japan. Either way, uh, what this is uh, in terms of what Britain is joining um, is um, um, a Pacific Rim uh, trade block. Uh, and that unites what you might say is the you know countries that you would expect australia new zealand canada japan singapore uh, but then you get into the more maybe maybe not you expect mexico chile peru brunei but also vietnam so vietnam uh, will be part of this uh, uh, block of course trump withdrew uh, the united states from this uh, uh, block in the name of make america great and this is a terrible deal, uh, but it now looks like uh, Biden um, is uh, putting the United States uh, back in that. So we have this peculiar situation uh, in Britain uh, that uh, Britain has withdrawn from the EU um, and, um, you know, in the name of a global Britain and doing trade deals with um, uh, X, Y and Z and is now sort of constituting itself uh, a Pacific uh, power. Uh, I don't think so. Um, but nevertheless, um, um, it, it makes sense uh, from an American point of view um, um, in terms of its uh, moves to, um, how should we put it, um, isolate to stop the rise of uh, China. Uh, that makes sense for the Americans. Um, so I don't know whether Britain will be welcome um, uh, in that it's a marginal question. I think Britain's trade with this uh, block as it exists amounts to something like 10% uh, of its total uh, trade. This is minus, of course, the United States. Okay, so that is something to note. Uh, meanwhile, with the EU, um, anyone who lives in Britain, I don't know about how much of this you're picking up in the United States, uh, but we're in the midst of vaccine wars. And uh, what we saw is the EU deciding Britain could have been part of this, even though it's pulled out of the EU, uh, um, a block by 
uh, from various um, 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 big pharma uh, uh, companies. Now, I don't know what the deal is. Um, you know, we've um, had a, a glance at the, the deal uh, with one company, AstraZeneca, um, but one presumes uh, that if you're a block uh, that unites 400 million people, uh, you're able to get a better deal um, um, off Big Pharma uh, than if you're just a country like Britain and you've got 66 uh, million people. We presume uh, that's the case. Either way, Britain was quick um, off the mark uh, when it came to vaccines and it appears that the EU was slow um, off the mark. Now, in part, uh, this is because of AstraZeneca. Remember, it's uh, the name of its drug, Oxford, um, the Oxford drug. This is uh, an Anglo-Swedish company. And basically the approach of uh, Britain was to say, and this is true with um, all countries, as far as I can uh, tell, uh, look, we're going to pay you uh, for these vaccines, um, whether they work or not. Um, so uh, Britain pre-ordered, um, you know, huge numbers uh, of vaccines from AstraZeneca, but also from other companies. And what's been remarkable, of course, with COVID-19 uh, is the fact that, you know, the brilliant scientists have been able to develop an effective vaccine, you know, from, um, you know, ground zero uh, to an effective vaccine in months. And um, in terms of Britain, uh, it's got um, 400 million uh, doses um, on, on order. Um, and that will cover uh, the British population twice over for two vaccines. Um, and it will, it will cover the British population um, even if um, immunity is only a matter of six months, seven months, a year. None of us actually know for certain. Meanwhile, in Europe, uh, what you've got um, is a, a, a delay in terms of delivery because of upgrading. Either way, um, uh, Britain um, is performing vastly better uh, than Europe when it comes to vaccinating people. If we look at uh, deaths uh, um, from COVID-19, Britain has been amongst the worst in the world. And there are a number of reasons uh, for that. Slowness in terms of lockdowns, uh, lack of NHS facilities, Labour and Tory governments uh, underspending on the NHS, uh, the um, running of the NHS as if it's a car plant, just-in-time production, uh, lean uh, production, no room for emergencies, uh, denial um, um, of um, wargaming uh, exercises that says, well, this is what would happen to the NHS if there was an outbreak of some unknown contagious disease from the East, all of that was ignored. Uh, all of that uh, um, was just, they, they actually closed down the wargaming exercise. It was so embarrassing. Either way, uh, what we've got now is where Britain um, is at the top of the league table, even in front of the United States, uh, when it comes to deaths per thousand, uh, what we've now got is a situation where Britain is third, not in the league of shame, uh, but in the league of success and in terms of uh, giving people jabs in the arm. The leading country by far, from what I can gather, uh, is Israel. 
I can't tell you why. I don't know enough about the situation in Israel. Either way, if we take Israel um, out of 100 people now, 53 have been vaccinated. Uh, if we take Britain, it's at number three uh, in the league table, and it shows you the huge gap there is. Uh, it's got uh, uh, 12 in 100, 12 percent um, have been uh, vaccinated. In Europe, it's way down there. So uh, what we've had is a situation of where the EU has responded to this because some of the plants that are manufacturing uh, doses that are coming to Britain are based in, for example, Belgium. It slapped uh, um, export controls um, on it. And wow, as an unintended consequence, uh, we in Britain are back now to the Irish question uh, because uh, what we've got is a peculiar situation. Uh, the state of the UK is divided in two. Uh, part of it is in the EU zone, that's Northern Ireland. And the rest of it is outside the EU. We have customs posts metaphorically in the middle of the RSC. And what this uh, sanctions did, or what this um, um, export ban did, uh, is it still Northern Ireland um, off. So we're back into the politics of Ireland. And you had the, I think, more or less unique situation of where Sinn Féin and the DUP united um, on this one to condemn uh, the EU. And the DUP actually wants to revisit uh, the deal with the EU. I don't think that's going to happen, by the way. Nonetheless, in Britain, um, the Tories won the last election under the slogan of get Brexit done. Well, they did in law, but in terms of disputes between the UK and the EU, that's locked in uh, to this deal. Um, so in terms of workers' rights, um, environmental protection, uh, and, and issues such as uh, the vaccine, this is uh, going to be a source of constant, constant conflict between uh, Britain and the EU. So today in Britain, if you look at right wing uh, newspapers in terms of their headlines, it's along the lines of the EU is plotting to kill off British pensioners. Uh, because uh, as comrades will tell you, uh, I don't know what age they're now down to. 75, 74, my time is coming where I'll be called uh, for a jab. Uh, but yeah, uh, there are pensioners in Britain that what they're saying is they won't get this Belgium uh, jab. It's all the EU, uh, uh, all the EU's uh, uh, fault. Um, so EU will carry on uh, being an issue uh, whether Britain's in or out uh, of the EU. Uh, I just wanted now to turn to um, uh, Britain. I suspect it's the same um, uh, everywhere, um, but um, here's another table uh, for you. This is death rates uh, by um, occupation. And um, you wouldn't be surprised um, that if you take what is called elementary occupations, uh, that, that's got the highest death rate. Um, if you take uh, process plants, they come next. So people, for example, working in packing plants, but also in factories, uh, high rate of death. Sales, well, you don't need to be a genius to work out that if you're in sales, uh, then you come next in terms of uh, death. Caring, it's actually lower uh, death rate than it is to be um, someone serving in a shop. So care home workers, 
um, NHS workers, porters, actually have a lower death rate, still a high death rate. Remember, Britain is one of the highest uh, in the world. And then we get into what you would expect. Um, administrative staff. Well, there you are. You can work from home or you can work in offices that have um, uh, space. And then we get into technical occupations and managers and lastly, uh, professionals, um, so, such as um, lawyers. Um, these are people that are least affected uh, by COVID-19. Now in uh, Socialist Worker, uh, the journal of the SWP, not wrongly, uh, but they look at these figures and they take out uh, black people and people of an Asian uh, origin and they say, well, these people have the highest death rate. And that's certainly uh, true. But the reality is that if you actually look at uh, these occupations, what it will tell you is that people at the bottom um, have the worst pay. Uh, the people at the bottom have the worst housing. Uh, the people at the bottom are more likely to live in an intergenerational house. So you have mum, uh, you have dad, you might have gran you might have granddad, you might have grandchildren, and certainly in terms of uh, the borough uh, that has got the highest level of um, COVID-19 deaths, it's in East End of London, it's Newham, and that has got a very big concentration of people of a Bangladeshi um, origin who have the worst housing uh, and the most crowded um, um, housing. So in my take on it, of course there's an element um, that's involved with, um, you know, historic racism, the nature of um, immigration patterns, the nature of the British Empire, but it's class. It's class. Uh, this is not the British government, um, you know, trying to kill off Bangladeshis. It's a British government that is incompetent, uh, that is killing off people at the bottom of society, the least well off people who haven't got a garden, people who haven't got uh, permanent uh, accommodation, people who go to jobs that quite frankly, they are just desperate to keep and no matter what the risk, they need the money in. So class, I would argue. Okay. Um, okay, um, what I wanted to do now um, is turn to the question of China. I've already mentioned um, China and its relationship to this um, trans-Pacific um, agreement and um, the United States and uh, Britain and all the rest of it. What I wanted to do is turn to the Uyghurs um, and um, accusation not only by uh, um, Mike Pompeo, but also his replacement, um, Anthony uh, Blinken, um, that what the Chinese government is engaged in um, is uh, genocide. And that is something that in Britain, I don't know about in other countries, has been echoed uh, by Zionist organizations who've used uh, the um, Holocaust Memorial Day uh, not only to remember the horrors uh, that were carried out against Jewish people uh, by the Nazi regime in Europe, uh, 43, 44, 45, but also to say that there's some sort of equivalent uh, to the situation um, in China. Uh, I have to say myself uh, that I view uh, such uh, accusations as entirely cynical uh, and entirely baseless. 
Now, from what I can gather, um, uh, the Chinese government has behaved in a, um, a completely, um, how should you put it, uh, inhuman way. Uh, we don't want to um, exaggerate it, though. Um, so if we look at uh, the camps uh, that we have, uh, undoubtedly they exist. There's no question uh, of that. The Chinese government at one point was denying it. There's the satellite uh, information. Uh, we know it. Uh, but what is the nature of these camps? As I understand it, what we're dealing with is not a system of permanent detention uh, for one and a half million people. Who knows what the figure is uh, anyway, right? Uh, what we're dealing with is quote unquote um, uh, re-education camps. And, and I'm sure that what these people are being taught um, is vile and abominable. And how they're being taught is vile and abominable. Uh, I'm ready, readily uh, prepared to uh, concede that. But it is worth noting that if you are um, sentenced or uh, directed uh, to go to one of these camps, often it's the case that what you have to do is turn up in the morning, listen to a load of shit all day, and then you go back home. Um, these are not concentration uh, camps. They might be for some, that I don't deny, but what we're dealing with again, and it needs to be understood, is still a turnover. So we're not dealing with the detention of the entire population. Uh, we're dealing with the, the mistreatment um, of uh, an entire population. You could say that there's a process of um, cyanization uh, going on. Um, that is arguable. Uh, China certainly reversed its policy in the 1980s. As I understand it, I'm not a, an expert in this, but as I understand it, up to the 1980s, what you had, I suppose, is a more Soviet approach uh, to national minorities. And, and therefore, what you had is the encouragement by the state uh, for people, who, who, minority peoples, to develop their own language, develop their own culture, uh, develop, um, um, yes, in a way uh, that enabled them uh, to uh, get on with the rest of uh, China, Chinese people, but nevertheless, develop your own culture. That started to break down in the 1980s. Uh, I don't know why. It might have been associated with uh, a series of uh, terrorist attacks. There have been, you know, numerous uh, uh, terrorist attacks. And certainly looking um, at uh, the 20th century um, as it went forward uh, and the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, uh, what we have is a Chinese government, uh, I think, reacting in panic. But we again need to put things in context. In terms of uh, genocide, uh, one of the figures that has been quoted, for example, has got to do with the decline of the birth rate. So we have a growing uh, population still, maybe. Uh, but the figure that's quoted is that amongst Uyghurs, the population growth has gone down by 24%. So it, it's done that. Amongst the rest of the population, it's only gone down by 2%. Now, that sounds like a damning statistic, except when you put it into wide, the wider context. Throughout the period of Mao, you basically had a, a Chinese government that said, the more, the better. The more people we have, uh, the stronger that we are. We are. 
um, that was overthrown. And uh, most comrades will know of the one child policy. And uh, if you had more than one child, uh, you could be fined. Um, there were um, instances of um, abortions. Uh, there were instances of sterilization if you had two children. All of that uh, uh, took place. Uh, nonetheless, that policy was imposed on the Han Chinese. And what you had with minority peoples um, is actually uh, uh, you are allowed to have more children. And you had uh, um, um, dispensation, for example, uh, that if you have two girls, uh, you're allowed to try uh, for a boy. Obviously, if you look at peasant culture um, um, and rural regions, you understand the importance of having a boy. You know, a girl, a, a girl child is to be wept over. A boy child is to be celebrated. A, a boy will have a, a wife coming in. A girl child you'll send out uh, to someone else's uh, family. Either way, um, what we now have is a two-child uh, policy, and that has been extended uh, to the Uyghurs. That's, that's the explanation of uh, this genocide uh, story. So the genocide story consists of um, teaching people in a very crude way, Islamic fundamentalism is bad, China is good. Um, a very crude approach uh, when it comes to the population question. But I think that what we need to understand uh, is the wider picture. And that's why when I'm faced in politics with no doubt a naive, uh, well-meaning resolution uh, that we should all put up our hands to con condemn China over this question, uh, I am extraordinarily reluctant unless it's linked uh, with a recognition uh, that the United States um, is engaging in an attempt to stop the rise of China and indeed, uh, uh, um, how should you put it, um, ferment division um, um, uh, in China. Uh, unless it goes with that, what it reminds me of, not that I was around in 1914, is the stories in the British press that you could read of, of German soldiers uh, putting Belgian babies on their bayonets and raping nuns. I'm sure there were nuns who were raped in 1914 by German soldiers. I'm sure there were instances of German soldiers bayoneting a Belgian baby. But this, the, the, the nature of these stories was to actually encourage war, a war fever in Britain and get people to sign up for a war that was going to be over by Christmas. And I think that that is what is going on now. So you've got naive people in the name of human rights that are in reality are taking part in um, uh, a United States strategic game um, against China. Uh, a couple of things on that. Um, if you remember back to the Beijing Olympics, I was waiting for Tibet to be raised. Uh, no Tibet was raised. It was clear that in that period, what you had is the United States that thought it could integrate China into the world economy and subordinate it uh, to the United States. Um, they were, that was an illusion. Um, they integrated China into uh, the world economy, but they haven't politically subordinated China uh, to the US will. And um, hence we see not only the moves by Trump, we'll see the same thing 
um, under Biden. So we now have the Uyghur question, we have the Tibet question, uh, we've got the whole question of uh, America's right uh, to patrol uh, the Chinese coast coastland. We have uh, the United States going into a position of where it is moving towards encouraging Taiwan uh, to declare itself an independent state. Now, if we go back to 1949, um, you had um, China represented in the UN uh, and in terms of embassies by a government based in Taipei. It was the Guomindang government of Kan Chai-shek uh, that decamped from China and went to Taiwan. And it said that we are the government of all of China. China is one. We are the legitimate government. And when Nixon and Mao did their deal, that was swapped. There is one China and it's now represented by Beijing. And the United States seems to be now moving away from that. So Biden um, had a representative of the Taipei government at his inauguration. Um, that is a first um, since um, um, uh, Beijing was recognized to be the legitimate government of China. Um, and meanwhile, what we're getting is the United States arming uh, Taiwan and the Chinese are saying, well, China is one. If you go for independence, this is war. Well, I don't take that uh, on face value. The, the military balance of forces doesn't allow that. But China's saying uh, uh, the, 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 what is behind that message is we take this seriously. Um, China is one uh, that has been recognized by all sides until now. Uh, and this, as I said, needs to be seen as part of a wider picture. Uh, these aren't just um, isolated um, incidences. Um, the time. I don't want to go on too long, Conway, so I'm going to start to wrap up. I just wanted to finish by saying I do find it remarkable uh, that the left has done so little investigation of China. Um, you know, uh, we on the left are very used to discussing the Soviet Union. Many of our groups are defined by our analysis, right or wrong of the nature of the Stalin regime, the nature of the regime before Stalin, um, the post-Stalin regime. Uh, we all, we've all got labels. Uh, we've all got an analysis uh, of what made the Soviet Union tick. What was its nature? Was it a degenerate worker state? Was it a bureaucratic collectivist state? Was it a state of a new type? Was it state capitalist? You name it and you can carry on. Uh, we've looked at the Soviet Union uh, we've examined the Soviet Union, we split over uh, the Soviet Union, but now we have the world's second largest economy that uh, could quite conceivably, uh, in spite of all these US moves against it, remember it's got over a, a billion people, uh, actually become in terms of um, actual total output, uh, the world's leading economy. And yet what's the left done about it? Well. Many of us have just simply said, oh, it's a worker state or it's a socialist state because that's how it began in 1949. On the other hand, the SWP in Britain will say, well, it's always been a, a, a capitalist state and not be able to explain, I think, the big difference, the visible difference 
between you know what happened under Deng Xiaoping and what happened um, under under Mao. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the um, um, talk that was given um, on this forum uh, by Peter Nolan, um, who, in my view, you know, he, he said, "Oh well." Uh, until the 1970s, uh, Marxism has always been in a position where, you know, we viewed ourselves as against the market and a number of comrades, uh, you know, heard heresy and said, um, this is terrible, this is nonsense, this isn't uh, Marxism. And I can sort of go along with that quite easily. But th the point I'm really trying to make is that we actually need to study China. We actually need to learn what it is and how it works, where it's going, where it came from, uh, <laughs> rather than just hearing heresy or thinking we've solved it uh, by putting a label um, um, on it. China is an incredibly complex uh, uh, country. And if, if, we, if we look at the significance of what Peter Nolan was saying to us, uh, I, I think it lies in um, Hashbit, an insight into how the Chinese leadership think about themselves and how they want the rest of the world to think about them. Uh, a comrade was saying to me today uh, that, well, China, according to Peter Nolan, um, isn't exporting itself. It's not exporting itself uh, as a model uh, in the way that the Soviet Union did um, or, or the United States did. Um, or British imperialism uh, did. I actually think myself uh, that that might be changing. Uh, that if we look at the performance of the United States, if we look at the performance of Europe, it's pretty bloody awful. If we look at the United States, we think about Donald Trump, we think about January the 6th. Meanwhile, in spite of COVID-19 originating in China, uh, look at its growth uh, figures. And also think about China, not in the form of Maoism, uh, you know, with Naxalite guerrillas and people trying to copy Chairman Mao and the People's Liberation Army, but think about China along the lines of Confucius, a Confucius ideology as a model uh, for development and indeed a model for government. Someone was telling me, uh, not a million miles away from our ranks, uh, that uh, a colleague of his has just been appointed uh, to teach uh, Confucianism in Oxford University. Well, the significance of that isn't about being a medieval ideology uh, that was used um, you know, in Imperial China. Its significance lies in the fact that the Chinese Communist Party uh, owes as much now to Confucianism uh, as it does uh, to, to Maoism. Anyway, uh, just if you, if you look at uh, the Western press, most of the Western press uh, would just take it, oh, China's state capitalist, there's no problem. Uh, it's, we, we solved the question. The question comes of who's in command and who, who's carrying out what will. Uh, I'll simply put this forward to finish. Uh, I've not got uh, the answer, by the way. Uh, I just think that we need to begin to think about this question. I was looking up a statistic of uh, the Chinese Stock Exchange, which is clearly a capitalist um, institution. And if we look at the Chinese Stock Exchange, so we're talking really about Shanghai, um, the, the, in terms of value terms, 80% um, of that stock exchange is accounted for uh, by state-owned organizations. 
right? On the other hand, if we look at profit and we look at economic growth, the vast majority of China's economic growth and profit uh, generation comes from the private sector. And what you have to do is explain who's in command. Is it the private sector uh, that the state is responding to? Or is uh, capitalism subordinate uh, to the Chinese Communist Party? And you can call the Chinese Communist Party the Common Property Party or whatever the hell you want to call it. Uh, it isn't as simple uh, as just calling it state capitalist. After all, if we think back to Soviet Russia, how would one describe Soviet Russia? Well, you can describe Soviet Russia under war communism as one thing. You could describe Soviet uh, Russia as another thing under NEP. Lenin talked about uh, uh, Soviet Russia and said in the 1920s, when he was still alive, state capitalism would be a good idea. Uh, we need to actually encourage state capitalism. And what he meant by that is that the party, the regime would be in command. And I simply put forward the question, uh, is the Chinese regime subordinate to the accumulation of capital or is the accumulation of capital subordinate to the Chinese regime? I don't know, but I suspect the latter. Uh, we don't want to come out. In other words, what I'm arguing is trite answers uh, as not worthy of Marxism. Uh, Marxism isn't about putting labels on things. And that has been many of our problems, I think, when we deal with the Soviet Union. We think we have the answer when we call it socialist, a worker state, degenerate worker state, state capitalism. We don't need to think any anymore. Uh, well, Karl Marx, you know, the, the word capitalism wasn't around when Karl Marx was alive, didn't simply write the title page and say, does capital. He actually took three volumes to analyze it which was gonna be one book of six books uh, to analyze it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all uh, go away and write three volumes uh, as part of six books, but China is complex. It's, it's linked in with the transition from capitalism uh, to communism. The success of China is in part due uh, to the nature of its regime. I'm sure that's, that's the case, but it's also true to say that if you take the Mao Nixon uh, a turn, Deng, and the integration of China, that is also part of the explanation of the rise of China. Remember that the Soviet Union, apart from a very brief period uh, that was associated with the Great Crash, uh, was excluded, uh, was sanctioned uh, by the leading capitalist countries, apart from World War II. Um, I think, Stan, that I should... Uh, uh, wrap it up there. I think I've gone on long enough. I was going to deal with the Labour Left Alliance, but I think that uh, uh, 50 minutes or thereabouts is... Uh, oh, well, that will be missed. That will be sorely missed. I know it will. <laughs> but we'll, we'll wait for Kevin, Kevin's article. Kevin's article.